This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Syne. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that. And I loved that because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians. And the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument, and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. An only child alone and wild, a cabinet 
maker's son His hands were meant for different work And his heart was known to none He left his arm and went his lone And solitary way And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay A quiet man of music Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand Gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand The leader of the band is tired And his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man To the leader of the band My brother's lives were different For they heard another call One went to Chicago And the other to St. Paul And I'm in Colorado When I'm not in some hotel Living out this life I've chose And gone to know so well And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Thank you for the music and your stories of the road I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the
This is Our American Stories, and all week long we're celebrating Police Week. And during this week, we have the opportunity to pay tribute to the local, state, and federal officers who've paid the ultimate price serving and protecting all of us. And today, we honor Deputy Daniel McCartney. He died on January 8, 2018. We're going to be listening in on his memorial service, where there were thousands of people in attendance, from family and friends to numerous different police departments. Deputy McCartney was a U.S. Navy vet. He'd served with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department for three years and had previously served with the Hoquiam Police Department for six years. He survived by his wife, Sierra, and his three sons. Deputy Daniel McCartney was a man of character, the foundation of his character, his relationship with his God. And that trickled down into all facets of his life, as you will soon hear. We begin with the words of Chief Petty Officer Drew Sennery, United States Navy, one of Officer McCartney's Navy pals. Daniel and I shared a bond. It was a fellowship because we both followed God. And we leaned on each other because if some of you may know a Navy life, can be pretty challenging. You're surrounded by people from all different backgrounds, different morals, and you come together for a common goal. And when you're trying to walk a fine line as a Christian, you know, people are swearing around you. And as a Christian, you try to shy away from that. Additionally, they're watching movies that uh, have risky plots and all that. And, uh, and Daniel, he was a teacher to me because he would, he would point out the things that I was exposing myself to that were just chipping away at my faith. And I thank him for that. And as, I come, as I've come back here to visit the family and meet his young boys and for them to meet my sons, They're the ones thanking me for being his buddy, being his friend. Because together, when we were on Liberty, instead of hitting bars and having drinks, unloading and relaxing from the stresses of being underway, instead we went on tours and in the community and saw the sights and took pictures. And I love him for that. And my goodness, so now we learn that Daniel was a teacher, a good friend, and a leader. Next up, Deputy Luke Baker, who worked with Dan in the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. Let's take a listen. Several months ago, Dan and I were at a call dealing with a young man, a repeat customer, and an anti-cop type, who was swearing at us and not taking any responsibility for his part in a domestic dispute. I was let's say, verbally confronting the young man about his behavior and lifestyle choices. Dan, like a good partner should do, got in between us and moved me away. I chewed Dan out at the time, and halfway through my rant, Dan looked at me through watery eyes and said, it's me, it's me. I could tell that I had hurt his feelings, and I became quiet. He was right, and I was wrong. This is a kind of 
guy and partner he was, always wanting a peaceful solution and, a willing, and, and willing to stand up and to protect. Health and fitness was Dan. Dan was super strong and speedy guy. One day, Dan and I went to arrest someone who had assaulted his girlfriend. The subject was passed out on a bed and was woken up by us telling him that he was under arrest. The guy completely flipped out and started fighting us. I grabbed one arm and jumped on him while Dan did the same with the other arm. Dan was having no problems controlling his arm, but I could not leverage (laughs) the subject's arm into a handcuffing position and continued to struggle. Dan, with one hand, held his arm, reached over, grabbed the other arm from me, and pulled both arms together and calmly said, I got him, Luke. Go ahead and let go and cuff him. We talked about coaching and our glory years of competitive sports. Dan would see me eating junk food from the Mountain Detachment snack bar and would tell me about it. I would say, shut up, Dan. It tastes good. (laughs) Dan would show us selfie videos of him working out at the CrossFit gym. And even though it was impressive, I would tease him about making such videos. He was proud of his workouts and always spoke highly about the people at his gym. I was fortunate enough to speak with an organ donor representative the night following following Dan's passing. The representative was explaining how they were able to utilize Dan's well-kept, junk food-free organs to provide extension and quality of life to many recipients, including wounded soldiers. What an awesome gift. My pastor and I were talking the other night about good and evil in this world. We see so much evil and the worst of what people are capable of doing to each other in this job. Being part of this memorial reminds me of how much good and caring there is in this world. When you see amongst the thousands of people an elderly couple standing at attention, saluting and shaking to hold still while a procession passes, and a young child waving while holding an American flag, you're reminded of how many good people there really are. Dan approached life the same way he approached the job. He was 100% all in. One day, Dan and I went to arrest a subject with a warrant. The subject saw us and immediately started running on foot, and we chased him. He was able to put a cluster of patch of vine maple trees between us, and as we ran, I, being the wiser older deputy, took the longer route around the trees as Dan started running through them. Dan was smashed in the face and clotheslined by one of the branches, which later turned into a black eye for him. Being that bigger brother, I laughed at Dan, left him there, and continued chasing the bad guy. (laughs) As I was now closing the gap and about ready to make contact, I then saw the flash of Dan and a good form tackle of the subject. Dan had outran me. Dan has once again outran me to his heavenly home, and as I know, he had looked up to several senior patrol deputies. We all now look up to him in heaven. One last thing, there's a new canine on our department who will be hitting the streets soon. I met with Dan's boys several days ago and they decided that his name should be Dan. So I'm putting all bad guys in Pierce County on notice. Dan is still coming for you, as am I, as is every other person on this department, because that is what we do. Thank you. And that was Deputy Luke Baker. And so we learned that not only was Daniel, a great teacher, 
but he was a great partner. Next up, his best friend, Christian. I remember the first time I saw him in a gym, I thought, awesome, there's another redheaded guy in here. This is what I need. And uh, I remember working out with him, and nine times out of ten, that guy would destroy me in every workout that we would do. Uh, either double the amount of reps I would do or just beat me by minutes. Um, but I remember one time I actually beat him, and I was so excited, and uh, you know, I'm sitting there kind of throwing it back in his face. And uh, he told me, he's like, bro, you got to remember, I got a broken neck right now. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. Um, but after he uh, finished his, uh, got his surgery and fixed his broken neck, uh, I remember he came back and it was only a few months after he did this uh, workout uh, called Fran, which if you don't know it, it's uh, 21 thrusters, 21 pull-ups, 15 thrusters, 15 pull-ups, 9 thrusters, 9 pull-ups. Um, and he did that in 2 minutes and 51 seconds. And that right there is, in the CrossFit community, that's world-class status. And that's a few months after neck surgery. And uh, what I'm getting at with that is, that was his dedication. That's how hard he pushed himself. There was nothing that he could not achieve. And even after he did that, he sent me a message and he said, bro, I could have gone way faster. I was taking it easy. <laughs> I thought, you were absolutely ridiculous. It took me six minutes to do that. <laughs> I love him. Dan, I love you. I miss you. You're going to always be alive in my heart. And we can't hear that enough. Men telling other men they love them. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about this man, his life. Officer Daniel McCartney, who died January 8, 2018, all this week, doing what no one else is doing, what everybody should be doing, and that's honoring the men who served us and paid the ultimate price. This is... Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and we're celebrating, we're honoring National Police Week here, and we do this, as you know, for all of the folks in uniform who serve us. You know what we do on Memorial Day, what we do all year long with our fallen soldiers, our Medal of Honor winners. And this week, it's our cops, it's the officers, uh, men and women in blue, putting their lives on the line for us. And by the way, if you have stories about the people in your lives who serve and protect you know, the beautiful things they do every day. Send us a line. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. Uh, they're the favorite stories of ours, your stories, and we love putting them up on the air. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And the proclamation for Police Week, by the way, was signed by President Kennedy in 1962. And again, we know why. Here now is Officer Daniel McCartney's former chief, Jeff Myers. Let's take a listen. 
If there was a manual for sheriffs and police chiefs, it would say, I hope you never have to do this. Uh, but here we are, so I ask you to bear with me. Daniel McCartney started his career as a peace officer in Washington State with the Hoquiam Police Department on April 1st, 2009. I gave him the choice of another date, but starting on April Fool's Day, it didn't seem to bother him in the least. There's a serious photo of Daniel with a stern face taken soon after we changed uniforms from light blue to dark blue, and I think Daniel would want us to see him that way, all serious and all business. But we know better. For those that knew him and for all of us at Hoquiam PD, we see Daniel with an ear-to-ear infectious smile and sparkle in his crystal blue eyes. With the shock of red locks and the occasional extra spiked hairdo when he thought I wasn't looking, Daniel quickly became a member of our family at HPD. With only 18 sworn officers in our department, your patrol squad becomes your family away from home 12 hours a day, three days on, three days off, week after week, and month after month. Daniel and his family lived in a small neighborhood in Montesano, surrounded by other Hoquiam officers, as well as peace officers from around the harbor. We used to call it the Hoquiam East Precinct. Daniel was smart, a part of our small pond. During his time at HPD, Daniel was always going 110%. He was a patrol officer who never sat still. He quickly aspired to additional collateral duties, including bike patrol, field training officer, and he was a member of the Aberdeen Regional Crisis Response Team, and he was our computer network administrator, although I think that last task was somewhat by default due to his wicked computer skills. Daniel earned the nickname of Danimal because he was a red-haired bulldog who kept digging and digging. He, put, he was a part of the team, but he often liked to be in the lead. Daniel's drive and competitive nature sometimes even seemed cocky at times. Really drove everyone else in the department to step up, to do better. We sometimes called him Dan the Man. Daniel also embraced his role as a guardian of our community, a role model. He treated others with respect even when, they didn't ha- when he didn't have to. Sergeant Mitchell, his, one of his squad sergeants, related Daniel's dismay when he once lost his temper with the suspect and swore at the suspect. To the rest of the squad, the suspect was being a jerk and figured he probably had it coming. But to Daniel, he was disappointed in himself because that's just not how he treated other people. Daniel participated with Shop with the Cop. He read books to kids at the library. He taught bike safety at the annual Central Elementary Bike Rodeo. And he visited with citizens at National Night Out. These assignments he took with the same zeal and dedication as he did his patrol duties. Dan the man. Daniel drove himself to make a big ripple in a small pond every day. Liz Yates of Consistent Cups Espresso first met Daniel when he worked briefly at Staples. I'm assuming he was one of the geek squad there with those wicked computer skills. Liz was opening her business and had some menus printed. Daniel promised to come by, and he actually did. After Daniel started at HPD, he came by every day to get his espresso in Aberdeen on his way into work or to pick up one for his wife, Sierra, on his way home. Liz even remembers their drinks to this day. When Liz opened her second location in Hoquiam, Daniel was even more excited than she was. With a loud, whoop, yeah, at the window, Daniel was there six minutes after she opened her new location to graduate Liz, and I'm figuring probably order his coffee for the day. Over the years, they shared family stories of children of the same age, new kids on the way, and the birth of little ones to each of their families. 
Daniel just didn't talk about his love for his wife and his boys. He showed it every single day, one cup of coffee at a time. Liz also had the comfort of knowing Daniel kept an extra close eye on the coffee stand after hours because any sort of burglary would have created a serious crimp in his coffee habit. Even after Daniel transferred to Pierce County Sheriff's Office a little over three years ago and moved to Yelm, he still kept in touch with his friends at HPD, and he stopped in for the occasional espresso. The phone call came in the middle of the night. A Pierce County Sheriff's deputy was in a shooting. The deputy is in surgery. The deputy is Daniel. Then the second phone call came. Daniel didn't make it. All of our hearts stopped. We were devastated. When Liz heard of the news of a deputy killed in the line of duty in Pierce County, it was sad. So far away in another place, in another pond. But when she learned that deputy was Daniel, her heart stopped. She was devastated. Over the past week, our community came together by the hundreds to honor Daniel and his family. This was repeated all over the region, from Pierce County to Yelm CrossFit. Cards and flowers, tears and hugs, stories and remembrances. Because Daniel McCartney, son, brother, husband, father, and peace officer, made so many big ripples in so many ponds. If you look around you right now, you'll see all of Daniel McCartney's small ponds have come together here today to honor his life. As we go forward, just as our department has honored the family of Officer Donald Burke, killed in the line of duty in Hoquiam in 1980, whose daughter Kelly is here today to pay her respects to Daniel, Sierra and the boys will forever be a part of the Hoquiam PD family. No matter what years pass, the sacrifice Daniel has made as a peace officer to lay down his life in the protection of his fellow citizen will not be forgotten. But as time moves on and the shock of that night fades in the collective memory of society, I beg all of us to please remember that the sacrifice was made not just by Daniel, but the sacrifice continues every single day as Sierra and their three little boys, Titus, Tate, and Traxton, are forced to live without him. Perhaps no one can change the whole world, but I think Daniel understood he could make a big ripple in a small pond. Whether we realize it or not, all those small ponds are connected to each other, as evidenced by each of you here today. I think Daniel's legacy would challenge us to go forward in our lives and to be that big ripple. And my goodness, to listen to his chief say those words, those four words, Daniel didn't make it. And he's right. Sierra, the three boys, they're going to have to live the rest of their lives without their dad. But what stories were told... And my goodness, we can only all hope at our funerals that such words are told about us. He drove people to do better, to be better, said his chief. And remember what Drew said in the beginning. Instead of going out and drinking on Liberty, blowing off some steam, he taught me how to just go into town and enjoy the community, take some pictures, make some good at the time. And by the way, we know why we heard about his faith and not this faith every second thing. It's how he lived his life. And his faith, well, it dictated how he lived his life, and it determined it. 
And by the way, as Stan had just told me, you know, there's a tradition here at these cop funerals where cops come from everywhere to relieve the cops in that town, in that county of their duty. Traffic, detectives, you name it. They take care of everything so the cops in that town can go and grieve, grieve the loss of one of their men, one of their women. And so as we continue in Police Week, thank a cop in your town. Just thank them. Buy them a meal. They deserve it. And we're celebrating the loss of a great man. And he deserves to be known and named Deputy Daniel McCartney. His wife, Sierra, his three boys. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Celebrating the life of a great man. Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. They're now making the return journey eastward, and our own Alex Cortez brings us our 37th feature on what happened during these exact days in history, over 200 years ago on the Lewis and Clark Trail. Sunday. These Indians are constantly hanging about us. Monday, I detected one of them in stealing a piece of lead. I sent him off immediately. That's an exasperated Meriwether Lewis, and here's our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. Lewis is out of patience, so number one, Lewis is completely out of patience, and it's only going to get worse. Gave the fellow a few stripes with the switch and sent him off. He, he has what my friend David McCandry calls a slow-motion nervous breakdown on the return journey. An old Indian man attempting to creep into camp in order to pilfer. That may be a little strong, but he certainly is completely out of patience with Native peoples and just wants to get home. These are the greatest thieves and scoundrels we have met with. One of them had the insolence to cast stones down the bank at two of the men. He wants them to help when he wants help, and then he wants them just to stay out of the way. And so Native peoples regard property differently from Anglo-Americans, and so pilfering, James Ronda actually has a splendid account of this in his book, Lewis and Clark Among the Indians. He says, look, pilfering is not the same as stealing. Pilfering is almost a game. They stole two spoons from us. What can I carry away? What can I sneak off with? What, what can I take from these fellows? The native peoples are metal-starved. They're starved for any civilized goods, any manufactured goods. This morning, I was informed that the natives had pilfered a knife from the party in the course of the night. And they see that these rich, bearded strangers are carrying a lot, and they try to get it. And so their women are willing to sleep with Lewis and Clark's men for trade items. Now, this is true of Captain Cook's voyages and, and most first world, third world explorations. 
And if a native person sees a saddle or a stirrup lying around or a hatchet, they just pick it up. They also stole an axe from us. Lewis and Clark always remark when the native peoples return something, but it's rare. And in the lower Columbia, the native peoples had had a lot of encounter with white traders. So Lewis and Clark saw tattoos. They saw a strong incidence of venereal disease, and they felt, and they were right, that the natives who had had plenty of previous encounters with white people had been debased by this, by alcohol, by white people's diseases, and by whatever sort of cultural superiority the white people were lording it over the Indians with. And so they were less trusting, they were less innocent, they were less people in a state of nature, they were more cynical, jaded and opportunistic with respect to what Lewis and Clark were carrying. And so this really bothered them, that, that you know that their idea of, of great Native peoples would be the Nez Perce uh, or the Shoshone, people that had really never had much white contact and who were still in a state of comparative innocence and trust. But here were these lower Colombian Natives who were, um, Lewis called them Higglers. They wanted a lot in trade for anything that they offered to Lewis and Clark, and they were always kind of haunting around the camp, seeing if they could spirit something away. They stole another tomahawk from us this morning. And so Lewis gets upset, and, and his patience gets thinner and thinner and thinner until on the return journey when a native person from the lower Columbia steals a socket or something. Lewis beats him. Cursed the man, beat him severely. And threatened to burn down their village. I would shoot the first of them that attempt to steal an article from us. We were not afraid to fight them. I had it in my power at that moment to kill them all and set fire to their houses. Demands things that have been stolen to come back, and if they don't come back, boy, they're really going to get it. They have vexed me in such a manner by such repeated acts of villainy that I am quite disposed to treat them with every severity. The natives steal the dog Seaman, and then Lewis really goes nuts. If they make the least resistance or difficulty in surrendering the dog, fire on them. So it's partly the habit of native peoples who've had previous contact with whites and have been debased by that encounter, and it's partly a sort of an elaborate game amongst native peoples, and it's partly a kind of redistribution system where they say, well, these rich people uh, are leaving stuff lying around. They must not care so much about it. We'll just take it. We want it. We'll, we're willing to take some rebuke or maybe even a beating to enrich our tribe with some pieces of metal. If I dare say so myself, it almost seems like Lewis's reactions are violations, or close to violations, of one of his president's most important mandates. It did. So Jefferson had told him to bend over backwards, to be uh, amicable, and to avoid any kind of serious conflict, and if push came to shove, to turn back, that he would rather see them return safely than to get into some sort of a, an armed conflict with Native peoples. And Jefferson had a strong sense of the duty, almost a white man's burden, to be gracious and conciliatory and, and generous. And that was Jefferson's temperament. And Lewis tried hard to fulfill that, but 
he got pretty upset with the treatment that he felt he was and his men were getting from native peoples in, in the lower Columbia. But had Lewis not been out of energy, out of spirit, he probably would have done better. You don't see these incidents uh, with Clark. Clark was more resilient than Lewis. His temperament was more even. He was less easily upset and thrown off his center of gravity. Lewis gets tripped up more than Clark. Something happened to Lewis. We just don't know what it means, but something has gone wrong for Meriwether Lewis. You know, if you're Jefferson, you want to hire somebody who can maintain a high level of energy and competence all the way out and all the way back. And although Jefferson didn't hire Clark, he got that with Clark. But with Lewis, Lewis breaks down. And even if you don't accept the Nicandri theory that he had a kind of slow-motion nervous breakdown, it's clear that Lewis really wasn't at full strength on the return journey, that he was petulant and irascible and easily offended and annoyed, and that his patience had run so thin that he actually struck native peoples and threatened to burn villages. He was behaving like a kind of a colonialist that you would see in a Joseph Conrad novel, in the Heart of Darkness. Uh, it's hard to know what this means. I, mean, I don't think anyone has ever really sorted it out. And I've tried, and David McCandry has tried. Most Lewis and Clark buffs just ignore it because they don't want to have to face this problem in Lewis. But from a Jeffersonian point of view, from Jefferson's point of view, it had to be, if he'd known about this, it would have been very disappointing to think that Lewis could not sustain his level of equanimity and mastery for the whole journey. Really, by the time they got over the Bitterroot Mountains on the outbound, Lewis has given most of what he's going to be able to give to the success of the expedition. He's going to have good moments on the return journey, but he doesn't have sustained stability. And so, you know, it's easy for us to say he should have been better. If we'd had the same responsibility that we have to get 33 people all the way home across some of the most difficult terrain in North America without any money supply, I think the, the stress might debilitate us too. But Clark turns out to, to have a, a more resilient steady spirit than Lewis and so that's what always leads me to say that the the most intelligent thing that Lewis ever did was to hire Clark to be his co-captain Clark Clark really led the expedition home I think that Lewis's neuroses whatever is wrong with Lewis whatever's fractured or cracked is part of what makes this story so compelling because there's actual human nature in it not just this kind of mythology that we carry around of this kind of cheerful Boy Scout troop that were singing their way across the American West like Tweedledee and Tweedledum and everything was fine and it's all water off their backs and they never have a bad day and so on. This is a less interesting story. It wasn't that way at all. There's some darkness in the story and that darkness I think is part of the American epic. And great storytelling, as always, by Clay Jenkinson. And thanks to Alex Cortez for continuing to deliver more on this remarkable story 
My goodness, Louisiana Purchase changed America. But Lewis and Clark, what a commission. And what a journey we're going on with Clay. Clay happens to be the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And you bet he deserved it. Lewis and Clark, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories. stories and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do sign up for our free newsletter and we'll send you our five best stories each week that's ouramericannetwork.org again sign up for our free newsletter our five best stories each week straight into your inbox and by the way send the link to friends and today we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in cincinnati ohio Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And, And we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986... United Way of Cleveland, Ohio set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. A rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material, was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's say bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong. They're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. Uh Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. 
it's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here and our friends in LA think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27th, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records, the Cleveland home of the, home of the, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. The all-American city. Now, typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the balloon-fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of Northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered apparently from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. Here you have couple hundred thousand uh, orange orange balloons and it's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release, with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down, and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up, 
and uh, the balloons took the watch and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say if anybody finds Mary Allen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job as always on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories. The most famous railroad engineer in American history was none other than the great Casey Jones. This is his story. Here's Jesse. The Ballad of Casey Jones is a song about a railroad engineer and his death at the controls of the train. Johnny Cash covered it in his 1963 album, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Come all you rounders if you want to hear The story about a brave engineer Casey Jones was the roller's name On a six-eight wheeler, boys, he rode to fame Caller called Casey about a half past four He kissed his wife at the station door He climbed in the cabin with his orders in his hand Said, this is the trip to the promised land Casey Jones Climbed in a cabin, Casey Jones Orders in his hand, Casey Jones Leaning out the window, taking a trip to the promised land At the age of 15, Casey Jones began working the telegraph for the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. In 1884, he moved to Jackson, Tennessee, where he was promoted to the position of flagman. He got married, bought a house, and had three kids. By 1891, he takes a job as an engineer for the Illinois Central Railroad. He quickly earns a reputation for always being on schedule, even if it means pushing the train faster than most men would dare. The public began to notice Casey Jones because of his trademark whistle that he would blare as he was racing through town. Its unique sound involved a long, drawn-out note, a sound that became his trademark. It was described like the war cry of a Viking. On April 30th, in the year 1900, just outside the small town of Vaughn, Mississippi, there was a train stalled ahead on the track that Casey Jones was running on. Just after a long curve, hidden from his view until the last moment. When Casey Jones did see the other train, it was too late to prevent the crash. But with a collision imminent, 
he chose to become a hero. Pulling the whistle to warn anyone on the other train, he slammed on the brakes and ordered his fireman to jump. We had been running at very high speed. And we're about to hear a rare first-hand account of this story. In this incredible recording, we will hear from a man named Sim Webb. Sim was on board that train with Casey Jones back in 1900. Weather and visibility were fairly good, and Casey Jones hoped to bring us in on time at 4.05 a.m. Our engine was one specially built for these trains by the Rogers Locomotive Works and had drivers six feet tall. On today's fine roadbeds, it would have traveled 100 miles an hour, possibly more. We may easily have reached that speed, and we certainly reach 90 often. The section of the line from Memphis to Grenada had recently been purchased from another railroad, and the track had pretty light rail. This fact, rather than the fast schedule, I think, caused some of the engineers we, to pass up the job on that fast train. From Grenada to Cannon, however, the rails were standard, standard weight. Anyway, the time was made up, put Casey in a good humor, and he talked and joked with me all along. Sim, he said, if you keep the old girl hot, we'll go into Canton on time. I said, well, I'll keep her hot. And naturally, I did. We took siding at Goodman and were hardly in the clear before number two's headlight showed up from the south. After it passed, we backed out of the, on the main line and began the last 27 miles of our trip. 15 miles south of Goodman is the little town of Vaughan, approached by an S-curve, which swings first to the right, then back to the left. Naturally, on this type of curve, the engineer and fireman of the steam locomotive cannot see the track ahead at the same time. As we entered the curve, I put in a fire and climbed up and looked out of the cab window on my side so that when we swung to the left, I could look ahead with a clear view of the siding and station. As we came out of the curve, there right ahead of us were the red rear markers of a train. Showing red meant that it was on the main line. At once I yelled to Casey, Oh my Lord, here's something on the main line. He jumped to his feet, looked diagonally across the top of the boiler, at the same time setting the air brakes in emergency stop. He had to reach up to do it, as the valve was located high on these engines. Jump, Sim, jump, he shouted. I jumped across the deck, grabbed the handrail, slid down as far as I could go, then turned loose. Casey never had a chance. The engineer's seat on one side and the long boiler which divided us, the cab on the other side, made escape practically impossible. 
hitting the ground knocked me unconscious. I woke up about 30 minutes later to hear voices say, here he is. We had hit the caboose of the freight train, gone through it, a car of hay, a car of corn, and halfway through a car of lumber, all of them on the main line, the rest of the train on the side. We had no orders against this train or any other except number two, which we had already passed. Our clearance card gave us rights over everything and we didn't have to look out for anybody. If a train is blocking the main line, railroad rules require that a flagman must go out 10 telegraph poles distance and place two warning torpedoes two rail links apart, then a stop torpedo. If a train approaches, he must also light a red fusee. This flagman must remain un out until called in. Without warning, we plowed into that caboose. The wreck occurred at 3.52 a.m., and as we had only 12 miles to go, with a clear track, we probably would have arrived at Cannon safely on time. If we had been properly warned, Casey Jones might have been alive today. Because Jones stayed on board to slow the train, he was believed to have saved the passengers from serious injury and death. His watch stopped at the time of impact, 3.52 a.m. Legend holds that when his body was pulled from the wreckage, his hands still clutched the whistle cord and brake. And thus the legend of Casey Jones was born. The wrecked 382 train that Jones died in was brought to Water Valley, Mississippi to be rebuilt. It was soon back in service on the same run. But bad luck always seemed to follow that train. January 3, 1903. Train robbers caused 382 to wreck. The engineer's legs were broken and badly burned. His fireman died three days later. January 22, 1912, 382 was involved in a wreck that killed four prominent railroad men and injured several others. The locomotive was retired and finally scrapped in July of 1935. On the way to the scrapyard, it jumped the rails and cost the life of one final victim. For Our American Stories, Jesse Edwards. Through South Memphis, yards on the fly. Rain been a-fallin' and the water was high. Everybody knew by the engine's moan that the man at the throttle was Casey Jones. Well, Jones said, Fireman, don't you fret. Sam Webb said, I ain't a-givin' up yet. We're eight hours late with the southbound mail. Be on time or we're leaving the rails. Casey Jones. Climbed in the cabin, Casey Jones Orders in his hand, Casey Jones Leaning out the window, taking a trip to the promised land Dead on the rail was a passenger train Blood was a-boiling in Casey's brain Casey said, hey, what kind of head, Sam? Jump, Sam, jump! Oh, oh he did Well, a hand on a whistle and a hand on a brake North Mississippi was wide awake I see railroad officials said He's a good engineer to be a-layin' dead Casey Jones, 
Climbed in the cabin, Casey Jones. Orders in his hand, Casey Jones. Leaning out the window, taking a trip to the promised land. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. Love, faith, work, business, history, sports, and courage. And all these stories from all over the country. And this one comes from a slightly unexpected place. Somalia, 1993. American forces were protecting the humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of the Somali warlord's top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. The ground task force was cobbled together to secure the first crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, saw how desperate the situation was. An armed force of hundreds converged on the crash site, and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into that crash site. This request was crazy, and it was denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again they were denied. One more time they asked, and finally, finally they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred-meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Shugart were killed in action. But because of them, because of their efforts, the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for America fighting men. But where does that leave the families of this hero? What about those kids? Well, Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, she wrote this letter, this remarkable letter, for their children, then aged six and three. My dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them. No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. 
He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission, your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse. Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally. Dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military, and I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, he did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad? You miss Daddy? You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly, he said, a poem in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform. And a poem, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, burying their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass this grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute, a final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice, 
quiet but confident in the words he wanted us to have if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life, but always, always follow your heart. Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom. And what a beautiful letter from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon's bride, Carmen. And always we're stunned and pretty staggered by the beauty in the writing of so many soldiers in this country and their families. Jim Carroll's war letters, we've spent a lot of time on them. It's some of the best writing in America, folks. It comes from you. It comes from the people of this country. We're beautiful people. I wanted to share another piece of writing, this one from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon himself. This was a letter he crafted to his bride in the event of his death. And soldiers in conflict have a habit of doing this. They know what could happen. Here's that letter. Quote, I'm so very lucky to have you as a wife. I know you have the ability to go far, and shall, as long as you believe. It takes longer to build that foundation because the bricks break off now and again. Life's funny sometimes. The key is to keep a sense of humor. Don't take it seriously. Enjoy it. The real secret to life is already inside us. Just dig a little deeper. My goodness, what beautiful words for anybody to live by. And as always, a call out to all of our fighting men, those who came before, those that will come after, their courage and self-sacrifice, always in order. And we love to share these stories, stories of courage, love, loss, and faith, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, 
but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way, but as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort 
and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that, but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had. 
and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story builds here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 